Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, and there's Chuck, and Jerry's over there, and this is Stuff You Should Know. And I can't help but feel that I'm being subtweeted right now. <laughs> or, I don't know what that means. Oh, it's where you talk about somebody without directly talking about them. You just kind of maybe talk about their behavior or how you disapprove of something that they did, but you don't directly say, this person did this and I don't like it. You know, I uh, one time, I don't know all this lingo okay. with the Twitter because I was never on it, and I was emailing with Jonathan Colton, musician, mm-hmm. Jonathan Colton, mm-hmm. about coming on Movie Crush. And I can't remember what I said, but he said something, something, don't at me. <laughs> And I didn't know what that meant. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm sorry. I'm not sure what I did. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> like, I'm, I apologize if I did something wrong. And I think he was kind of like, who is this idiot? <laughs> <laughs> Hodgman likes this guy? <laughs> and I think don't – I mean, doesn't that just mean you're tagging someone on Twitter or something? Yeah, but usually it means, like, you're you're telling them that they got something wrong or you disagree oh, okay. with what they say or they should be ashamed of what they said. It's usually a hostile thing that you're adding okay, somebody. Gotcha. Or you're, you're – yeah, they don't – they're – they have made their point and they don't want to hear any feedback from you about it. That's what right, That's kind of what I took from it. And uh, you have and to, like, kind of snap a few times when you say it. <laughs> I'm just really so thankful still that I never joined Twitter. It just – uh, that's the last thing I need. I'm already on Facebook, which is terrible. I, I've, I've been enjoying Instagram, I have to say. That seems like a, a pretty nice crowd. Totally different um, place. Yeah. But, you know, we're talking about all this because we're talking about Sakagawea. Yes, we are. <laughs> Who um, Naturally. Yeah, naturally. Who would probably eschew both uh, Instagram and Twitter because she seems like a pretty solid human being. She'd be like, don't at me. <laughs> that's right. So, um... <laughs> Just to just to get this done out of the gate, uh, again, I thought that her name was pronounced Sakajawea. I am not like in the minority in the United States, at least, because that's how we were raised to say her name. But fortunately, yeah. we have such things as historians and people who listen to Native Americans who have been told over the years. No, it's not Sakajawea. It's Sakakawaga, right? There's one pronounce pronunciation of it, but that. It's not j, it's ga. Um, and we've started to kind of pronounce her name correctly. You say it way better than me, so why don't you take it? <laughs> well, I mean, I, and gosh, this is the third time now we're on this. I've seen different things from Sakagawe to Sakagawea. Mm-hmm. I think in Clark's journal, uh, William Clark, that is of Lewis and Clark fame, mm-hmm. spelled it S-A-H-K-A-H, emphasis on that. G-A-R-W-E-A, so Sakagarwe, mm-hmm. or Sakagarwea. Mm-hmm. But then the Shoshone, which uh, is a uh, Native American tribe that, uh, well, well, we'll get to the importance there. Um, they say, actually, it is S-A-C-A-J-A-W-E-A, mm-hmm. and it means boat pusher, mm-hmm. not the Hidatsa language of bird woman, mm-hmm. So there is some debate. Yeah. Um, one thing that I did see is that Lewis and Clark, um, and they factor in this because Sakagawea was the um, the main guide and interpreter uh, as they pushed further westward. Um, she or they they actually tried to spell every Indian or Native American word that they encountered 
phonetically as best they could. They were terrible spellers even of English words. (laughs) I mean, just like barely literate, it seemed like. But they tried their best. Yeah, it's really bad. Um, but they they tried to pr- they tried to spell every every word that they 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 found phonetically, and I think Sakagawa's name appears seventeen different times in both of their journals, and not once do they spell that third syllable "ga" with a "j" sound with a "j." It's always a "g," okay. and they think that it was a hard "g," so that it's right. Sakagawa, not Sakajawea. So they said it's definitely GIF and not JIF. <laughs> right, which <laughs> it is definitely GIF, as we all know. Uh, so if you listen to the Lewis and Clark episode, was it a two-parter? I feel like it was. It was not. It was not? Wow. And you're thinking of the Evil Knievel episode. <laughs> God, it's so embarrassing. <laughs> uh, you always bring that up to shame me, I think. <laughs> it shames both of us, and Jerry to yeah. a certain extent as well for That's letting true. that like, one she through. She could have stepped in yep. and been like, for God's sakes, what are you doing? Totally. Consolidate, man. <laughs> So, uh, a great episode, though. Uh, I know in that episode, we talked a, a bit, obviously, about Sakaga Way and Ken Burns and his great documentary about the uh, Corps of Discovery. Mm-hmm. But she was born, uh, she had a, she, you know, she lived a short life, and there is a little controversy on how long she did live, which we'll get to at the end. Yeah. But she was born in either 1788 or 89 as a member of the uh, Limhi, is what I'm going to say. Okay. L-E-M-H-I, band of the Shoshone tribe, which we spoke about a minute ago. Is it Shoshone or Shoshone? Shoshone? Is it Shoshone? That's Probably what Shoshone. I've always heard, but then again, I always heard it was Sacagawea, too. I know. I believe uh, it's Shoshone. She grew up, though, in a very, I imagine, lovely, lovely part of the country mm-hmm. in what is now Idaho uh, in the Salmon River region. Yes. Um, so she was actually a member of a specific band of the Lemhi Shoshone, um, the Salmon Eaters is what they were called. Um, and she she grew up in that that part of Idaho. I guess it was around the um, uh, the Bitterroot Mountains near the Continental mm-hmm. Divide, and the Bitterroots are yeah. part of the Rockies. But yeah, it just sounds absolutely gorgeous. Um, the Shoshone tribe was uh, enemies to the Hidatsa, who you mentioned earlier. And the reason that they say that Sakagawea means birdwoman is because Sakagawea became an involuntary member of the Hidatsa tribe when she was around 12 years old. Um, I didn't get if she was out on a buffalo hunt or if the Hidatsa happened to be out on a buffalo hunt and came across her. Did you understand that? I'm not sure. Um, I kind of just in my mind thought that they were out, but I guess it doesn't really matter because either way she was kidnapped. Mm Mm-hmm. And settled uh, with them near what is now Bismarck, North Dakota. Yeah. Uh, And here's where her life took a – or I guess that event actually took her life in a very different direction Mm -hmm. uh, in that that was a trading center, an international trading center. So people from all over the world would kind of stop through there to trade their wares. And she was um, essentially – I mean, it's hard to not say kidnapped again – um, a French-Canadian fur trader, Toussaint Charbonneau, um, Beautiful. took her as property. Uh, he called her his wife, but we can't, you know, now through today's lens, we've gotten a lot better about not glossing over that stuff. Right. She was property uh, to him. She was a teenager, I think like 16 or 17. Not, not even, I think mid- she was actually 15. Oh, was she? Mm-hmm. 
uh, and she was uh, about two decades younger than him. And there's no other way to say it other than she was property, and part of being property was that she was uh, raped by Charbonneau. Yeah, like there's there's um, there's no way you can put it that that like she didn't have any say in the matter of whether they had sex. So like it's just that's rape no matter what. Um, but yeah, over the over the years, like she's always been referred to as one of his wives because uh, I guess Americans didn't want to kind of confront that stuff, you know. Right. So she ends up um, living among the Hidatsa and as um, Charbonneau's wife slash property um, because Charbonneau, being a, a fur trader and the Hidatsa um, settlement that they lived at um, being this kind of international trading post, he had kind of adopted like a, a, the Hidatsa way of living himself Um he, just being a fur trader, he had to, to be able to handle himself out in the elements. Um, so I think it kind of, it was his speed. From what I gathered for the rest of his life, he just basically lived in a style similar to Native Americans. Um, so she, aside from being away from her Native tribe, she lived, you know, probably fairly in a fairly cosmopolitan manner compared to how she would have had she never been kidnapped from the the Lemhi band of Shoshones, um, which is kind of sad. But there's one thing that should be said. There's there's documentary opinion that she was um, she was not unhappy living on this kind of um, this border land between the two cultures. Like she she. Seemed to feel somewhat comfortable um, mm-hmm. living among, you know, the the colonizers' way of life um, on the frontier, it, just as much as she did living among the Shoshone. Yeah, and we should also point out that a lot of this is very little is recorded. A lot is speculative um, because you know there's remarkable. Well, I guess not remarkable because it was 1803, but um, very little actual recorded information about her life. But it's remarkable how much there is for the, well, the typical yeah. teenage Native American girl at the time. Um, like the the fact that there's anything recorded about her says is a kind of a huge testimony to her and her personality. No, absolutely. Um, so 1803 is when uh, Charbonneau uh, takes control of her life. 1803 is also when Thomas Jefferson said, hey, we got this uh, big tract of land, really sweet deal called the Louisiana Purchase, 828,000 square miles of land stretching from the Canadian border to the Gulf of Mexico, from the Mississippi to Colorado. And we need to go see what's out there because uh, white people have never explored this territory. Um, I want to find a Northwest Passage, which was eventually found. They were looking in the wrong place. But um, that's what they were sort of after. But they were after more. Jefferson really wanted to know what was out there, the landscape. He wanted maps. He wanted to know about the uh, Native American tribes. He wanted to know about the the plant life and the animal life. And just like go, uh, Meriwether Lewis, out there and record everything you can. Yeah, Mary, Meriwether Lewis was um, Jefferson's personal secretary. And Lewis um, selected um, – what was Clark's first name? Josh? Billy. Bi- William. William Clark. Billy Clark. Um, 
as who had been his uh, captain in um, the army as the leader of the expedition. He found him to be an able leader and said, hey, you want to come lead this super high prestige um, expedition for the president that the entire nation is going to be watching? And Clark said, sure, let's do it. So Lewis and Clark set out um, on this expedition, and they actually traveled, I think, 1,600 miles before they ended up um, in at that uh, Hidatsa settlement, um, wh- which is about where they really started to hit the, the frontier, from what I understand. All right. That sounds like a great turning point to take a break. Okay. So we'll be back right after this and uh, pick up with the meeting of Lewis and Clark and Sakagawea. Stuff you should know. Josh and Chuck. Stuff you should know. Okay, Chuck, so we've reached what is now today Bismarck, uh, North Dakota. at the South Dakota. South Dakota. You sure? I think so. No, it's, it's North. Right? Yeah, it's Bismarck, North Dakota. Are there two? <laughs> I was going to say it, it almost literally doesn't matter. We're going to get crushed for this. It is. No, it's definitely Bismarck, North Dakota. Okay. Then there, that was a misprint then in the uh, – I'll tell you what, get this. I've got this um, machine called the Computor. <laughs> Are you actually going to look it up? Yeah, I'm going to look it up. I'm going to do a favor for the people of Bismarck for once. Bismarck, well, North Dakota. Di- I think it's North Dakota. It is. That's weird because I think this is from How Stuff Works. They've got South Dakota written in there. Oh, boy. All right. We'll have to send an email. Not going to. I'm going to at them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that don't you know that's the tagline of how stuff works don't add us that's right so apologies to all the people in the both dakotas all three dakotas we meant nothing by it and we're going to do a live show there one day to make up for it mm, are we <laughs> sure why not um i'll tell you later okay <laughs> all right where are we it's november 2nd 1804 mm-hmm. When they finally land and they meet up with Sakagawea, who is uh, six months pregnant at this point. And Charbonneau is, uh, I get the impression that he's a bit of a, not a grifter maybe, but sort of an opportunist. Yeah? Yeah, I think so, for sure. I mean, like, he's a fur trader for Pete's sake. Like, you got to be, well, true. you got to be a little... Like that—that that includes not just survival in the woods and killing animals, but also having to, you know, get the highest price you can for your pelts. So, I'm guessing there's a bit of used car salesman to Charbonneau for sure. And he was not exactly—he like was not well liked by Lewis and Clark. I don't know that he was hated or despised, but I get the impression from reading historians' interpretations of their their journal entries about Charbonneau is that he's kind of a cross between. Um, Chris Farley. Okay. And Gollum, maybe? <laughs> I can't wait to see that Photoshop. 
Oh, goodness. Yeah, I know who's going to take care of that for us. So just this idea that this guy was not competent necessarily and was maybe a little bit evil. Um, and that's, that's you know, all you need to know about Charbonneau. I also get the impression, Chuck, that there was a, there was a you know, we'll talk about later, but there was uh, Sacagawea was plucked from historic uh, obscurity and really yeah. kind of raised up on this pedestal. And I think rightly so. But there was a sport that developed alongside of that where you could very easily raise Sacagawea up by contrasting her to her good-for-nothing slave-holding, quote, husband, mm-hmm. um, and showing how just uh, just terrible he was at everything. It made her look all the, all the much better. So I think there's a sport to it. There's a kind of a, a long history of putting down Charbonneau. Um, but I think that it's kind of rooted, in fact, from what I understand. Yeah, so at any rate, he comes along and he's like, hey, you guys really need to bring me along and, uh, and my wife uh, – slash property here. Um, I speak Hidatsa in French, and they're like, we don't really need that. But I see that Sakagawe speaks Shoshone, Mm -hmm. and we really need to learn that because at a certain point, we're going to need to talk to them to get some horses. Uh, And since we can't hire a woman because it's 1803, we have to actually hire the husband to get her to come along. I guess you both can come. Yeah, so – like we got to explain why um, Sakagawea being Shoshone was really important, and it was like you said those horses. And somehow I'm not exactly sure how they already knew this because these are the first um, Americans to chart a course westward, but they knew that the um, the Missouri River and the Columbia River was um, w- was separated by mountains, the Rocky Mountains, the Bitterroot Mountains to be specific, and that. Since they were taking to the river, they were going to need to get from one river to the other, and that the Shoshone Indians happened to live exactly where they needed, um, or where they needed to pass through, where they needed the most help, where they needed horses. And so having a Shoshone along to help broker a deal would be incredibly useful. So useful, in fact, that the arrangement was going to be that when they finally met up with the Shoshone um, tribe in this area where they needed the horses the most, um, Sakagawea was going to speak to the Shoshones, and then she was going to translate what the Shoshones said into Hidatsa to um, Charbonneau. Yeah. Charbonneau was going to translate from um, Hidatsa into French for a French-speaking member of the Corps of Discovery who would then translate from French into English for Lewis and Clark. That's how oh, Charbonneau didn't even speak English? No, he spoke Hidatsa no. in French. So okay, I thought he, that meant in addition to English. No, he uh, so he did he did play a role that was important. He was going to translate from Hidatsa into French. Um, it would have been way better if uh, he had spoken English, but it, it yeah, it just meant another person in the chain. Everything came out purple monkey dishwasher at the end. <laughs> So, uh, one thing we failed to mention, I think, which is just remarkable, is that um, a few, a couple of months before they leave together, uh, Sacagawea has her son, Jean Baptiste, um, known as Baptiste. Mm-hmm. And so, and I know we talked about this in Lewis and Clark, but I think I didn't have a kid at the time. It's just astounding to me now that I've had a two month old baby to, to take and like keeping that baby alive and all the comforts of you know, modern day America mm-hmm. to take a baby like that on a voyage like this is astounding. 
Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. It's really remarkable. Yeah, and <clears throat> I mean, like, if you look at all of the um, memorials to Sacagawea, um, I don't think there's one out there that doesn't also show Baptiste as well. Of course not. Um, not just because he was uh, an adopted honorary member of the Corps like of Discovery. <laughs> Basically a mascot, sure. Um, but also because it, it just goes to point out just how astounding what his mom did yeah. um, was, you know. I think uh, when when uh, Sacagawea was um, put on the the dollar coin in the United States in 2000, um, Hillary Clinton famously referred to her as the original working mom. Wow, that's that's a pretty cool designation. I thought so too. So yeah, I think it's great to to just that that she's remembered as you know doing all this with a a baby strapped to her back the whole time. Right. So um, that's their plan. They plan to get there, send her out to talk to the uh, Shoshone tribe to get these uh, horses, but uh, which was a good plan, but it was even way better. It worked out like almost like it had been written in a movie script or something. Yeah. Because I think it is uh, Lewis shows up first and has contact with uh, an older woman of the tribe, and then about 60 Shoshone on horseback ride up. And they're like, you seem like a decent guy. You're friendly. Let's all make this work out. Then Clark's group <laughs> shows up about a day later with Sakagawe. And they're like, oh, my God, it's you. You were the one that was kidnapped mm-hmm. and taken away so many years ago. Mm-hmm. And then Chief Kamehawait rides up, and it's Sakagawe's brother. Yeah. So not only do they get to have this reunion, but um, Lewis and Clark are like, yes, we're going to oh, get totally such a good scored. deal on these horses. Yeah. The the, her, the chief is her brother. Like, this is perfect. But you know what that stuck out to me as, Chuck? Um, that meant that Sakagawea probably would have met Lewis and Clark even if she had never been kidnapped. Uh, yeah, maybe so. Isn't that really crazy to think, like, that one way or another, she was going to probably meet Lewis and Clark, even sure. even with like her that. life diverging that radically from its, you know, original projected path. Yeah, and what it really did was, um, I mean, she was already proving to be useful in that she could identify berries and things that you could eat mm-hmm. and plants that you could use as medicine and kind of acted as the... Um, the navigator in a lot of cases, like, no, we need to go this way. I've been here before. This is where I grew up. Yeah, there's a huge, huge rock called Beaverhead Rock that she um, famously recognized that you can go visit and stand in the place basically where she showed Lewis and Clark, like, look, my my people are going to be right around here. I recognize this place. Yeah, so they've already got all this respect for up until that point. And then she has such an in with the Shoshone uh, like you said, they get, I'm sure, a really good deal on the horses. And not only that, but they get help. They get like, they kind of partner up with them yeah. to help them along, which is a really big deal. Yeah, because Lewis and Clark's expedition had um, somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 people involved, huge boats, several huge boats, lots of equipment, lots of instruments. And some people say, well, like, if they needed horses so bad, why didn't they bring the horses? Well, because they traveled by water. They really yeah. needed horses really, really badly, but just for this one specific part of the trip mm-hmm. in between the Missouri and the Columbia River. Thomas Jefferson very famous, uh, famously called it a dilly of a pickle that they had run into. Um, but the the fact that they were able to get the horses from the Shoshone, um, it just basically 
check this enormous box that the whole expedition um, was predicated on. They just couldn't, they could not have completed their mission without this. And um, Sakagawea basically brokered that, made sure that box got checked. And there's one other thing that stands out about her too that, that gets overlooked that I saw in a few places. Um, Charbonneau had another wife who was Shoshone. And if they needed a Shoshone speaker who was, a, who was you know, with Charbonneau, who came with Charbonneau, um, they could have very easily gone with Otter Woman, the, the other, the other um, I guess, victim of Charbonneau. Um, and they didn't. They went with Sakagawea, who, knowing full well that she came with an infant now, like there was going to be an infant, even though with Otter Woman there wouldn't have been. So clearly, Sakagawea is like putting out the right kind of vibes that's saying like, I'm extraordinarily competent. You should probably pick me, even though if you pick me, I'm going to be bringing a newborn baby along on this frontier trek. Um, I think that says a lot about the kind of... Um, I guess charisma or competence or whatever she was putting out that 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 Lewis and Clark were like yes I think she would be the better of the two. Yeah, because you don't want a two month old baby along. No, but if you're they're cute, but nah. But if you say okay, we'll have a two month baby along, like that says a lot about the the mom that's carrying the baby around and sure. what her her abilities are. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, she also proved her <clears throat> worth when, and I can't remember if we, I think we might have talked about this, mm-hmm. when uh, there was a, one of their sailing vessels almost capsized Yeah, uh, when a big squall hit it. Uh, apparently Charbonneau was navigating. He panicked under pressure, and it was Sakagawe who was calm and uh, said, you know what, we need to get these papers together. We need to get the books that we've been writing in. Uh, all these navigational instruments and medicines and provisions and other stuff. We need to get it all together and take care of it. And, oh, also this baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, and basically saved uh, that situation. And Charbonneau was just, you know. He was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> sacre blue. Uh-huh. Sacre blue. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that was um, – that's one of the big stories that's told about Sakagawea. So much so, I mean, um, that that either Lewis or Clark wrote about it and basically was like – um, this this Sakagawea is an amazing person. Like she's she's doing stuff that other members of the core are not doing. I, I mean, there is I think at least twelve members of the core of Discovery who aren't mentioned by name in either yeah. of the journals of Lewis and Clark throughout the ex- expedition. They did work. They did their their job, obviously, um, but they didn't get mentioned because they they weren't doing stuff like Sakagawea was. And I think the yeah. um, the fact that she's mentioned multiple times with kind of um, frequently discussing like just their impress how impressed they were with her it, it says a lot as well um yeah i mean they named because of that sailing incident they named a branch of the missouri river after her yeah and i think clark um was the one who really grew closer to her mm-hmm. uh it's really hard to get a read on exactly what the nature of their relationship was it seems just like maybe a mentor type of relationship in that he kind of took her under his wing and took these long walks with her. Um, I don't think there's anything untoward about it is kind of what I'm getting at. I don't have that impression either. And I have not run across a historian that's asserted that there was something untoward about it either. The way I took it. They were close. Yeah, they were. The way I took it was um, like uh, uh, an adopted little sister kind of thing. 
Yeah, that's kind of the way I see it, too. I, I also um, don't think Charbonneau would have stood for that. I think that would have been not okay with him because he was the kind sure. of guy who'd be like, that's my property, you know? Right. Well, of course. So, I, uh, yeah, I don't have that impression. But, yeah, I, I thought the same thing, you know, as well. Uh, and, in fact, they thought so much of her, especially Clark, that – and this is a really telling thing – is that they gave when they reached the uh, Pacific Coast, there was a vote on whether or not to stay there for the winter or not, mm-hmm. and they actually let her vote. Which in the early 1800s, to let a woman have a vote like that uh, was remarkable. Yeah. So um, th- when they when they decided to stay, that vote um, led to them staying in what's now Astoria, Oregon. They built a, a winter quarters called Fort Clatsop. Uh, after a friendly tribe nearby. And, Fort Catsup? Uh, that's what I thought, too, but it's it's close. <laughs> There's an L in there. Um, yeah. Yeah, Clatsup. Uh, but the, the Clatsup people said, uh, hey, get this. There's a beached whale. You got to see this thing. It's enormous. And so I think Lewis was like, okay, we're going to go check this out. You guys stay here. And Sakagawea, I know we talked about this in the Lewis and Clark episode. Sakagawea said, look, man, I have walked a long ways and helped you guys out. And the idea that you're not going to let me see the ocean. I've never seen any ocean. You're not going to let yeah. me see the ocean and this giant mm-hmm. whale that's been beached. Come on. And so Lewis relented very famously and was like, okay, come along. So Sakagawea kind of, she put her foot down basically and said, no, I'm I'm going to see this. Um, that would be unusually cruel not to let me. So she went and saw this, this giant whale. She saw the ocean for the first time. I mean, that's a pretty big... I've never seen a beached whale. Imagine seeing a beached whale the first time you see the ocean, too, you know? Yeah. I remember when I, uh, as a young kid, when I we showed my grandmother the ocean for the first time, and she was in her, jeez, uh, she was probably in her 70s. She lived to be 100. Wow. So she had to be in her mid-70s when we took her to the ocean. Yeah. And we, we walked her out there, and she walked out on the beach, I'll never forget it, and said, whoo. It's big. That's <laughs> cute. And that was about it. She didn't hang out for long. She's like, oh, I'm, I'm good. This was enough. Yeah. And there was no whale to poke with a stick. So, um, you want to... I'm kidding, by the way. You should never do that. Poke a whale with a stick? Yeah. I was I was making a joke. That wasn't nice. I think everybody knew that, Chuck. Yeah. You try and get that whale back in the water if you can. Not with the stick, though. Not with the stick. Um, you want to take our second break? Yeah, we'll talk about how this uh, all wrapped up and what happened to her afterward right after this. Stuff you should know. Josh and Chuck. Stuff you should know. Okay, so uh, they made it to the Pacific. They overwintered there in, I think, 1805, 1806. And then they started to make their way back. And um, they actually went right back to the same um, Hidatsa settlement, that international trading post or outside of Bismarck, North Dakota, um, <laughs> where they picked up Charbonneau and uh, Sacagawea. And they said, hey, thanks a lot. We'll see you guys later. And everywhere I saw, um, Charbonneau was paid something like $500.33 for his efforts, and Sakagawea was not paid anything. Um, 
although I saw also in this article that she was paid as well. What, do you can do you have any idea? Yeah, you know, I was confused too. <laughs> Everywhere else I looked said that she did not get direct payment. Which article said that she did? I don't know, but it doesn't seem to be right. Okay. Um, or maybe they just sort of said, well, since her captor slash husband was paid, then sort of means she was. I'm not sure, but I saw nowhere else that said that she was actually paid independently. And I mean, that would make the most sense, you know? Although after that that expedition, it's I could I would also not be surprised if she was paid directly, even though it bucked, you know, convention. Yeah, he got paid five hundred dollars and three hundred and twenty acres of land, which was pretty good. And it's like I tried to do a uh, inflation comp, mm-hmm. but it's they don't even have anything. I think it said like when you when you go that far back, you can't even compare it to today's currency. Oh, really? West gave me a um, an estimate of about nine grand. Oh, see, I saw I saw that too, but I didn't see that as a uh, as a direct inflation calculator. More like the goods that you could have bought back then. Mm-hmm. No, they said know. nine grand. Seem, no, I saw that. It just didn't seem like a one to one to me. Oh, I see. Um, even still, it seems like. A really, I would I would imagine five hundred dollars back then would be like ten trillion today, you know. Yeah, it would seem it would seem to be the case. It's it's a little weird, but yeah, because I mean, like a, a journey of thousands of miles um, at the behest of the president of the United States getting paid nine grand seems like it just seems like you would get more than that. I don't know, but then again, he's a fur trapper. Who only speaks Hidatsa in French, so who knows? I think what confused me is, like, if you enter $500 100 years later, uh-huh. it's like 15000 Or maybe that does work. I don't know. It just didn't seem to work out math-wise. But what do I know? Yeah, no, I'm with you. It, who it's, You kind of have to be able to peer back into the vagaries of the American economy over the last couple hundred years to suss that out. I looked it up and it said the what that would be today would be two hundred mink, eighty beaver tails, <laughs> right, and nine thousand dollars. Poor beaver. I know. That's the other thing about Charbonneau that people don't say he killed a lot of animals for their pelts. That's right. So, <laughs> uh, all right. So after the expedition, uh, she stayed with Charbonneau. Um, I think a few years later they moved to. Uh, with little Baptiste, moved to St. Louis. Yeah, the invitation of um, Clark, right? Yeah, and it says, you know, that they he offered them an opportunity of land to farm, which I don't quite get because he just got 320 acres of land. I was wondering if that was one in the same. Maybe. I, I couldn't quite parse that out. But at any rate, he's like, here, you come here. Here's some land to farm. If you let me educate your son— mm-hmm. Uh, in the, you know, American sort of schooling system. And, uh, you know, that was, he was the godfather of the boy at that point, really cared a lot about Baptiste and Sacagaway and wanted the best for him. Yeah. And I think that was a pretty decent deal for Charbonneau. Yeah. So, I mean, um, I believe Clark officially adopted uh, Baptiste as his guardian, at least, if not as his, his adopted parent. Um and he was educated at the St. Louis Academy, I believe. And then he, um, 
I don't know how he met him, but B- Baptiste went on to meet a German prince who was like, hey, you should totally come back and hang with me in Germany, and I'll make sure you get a European education. And he did. He moved to Europe and was it's educated amazing. there, um, lived a pretty interesting life, said, yeah, I'm going to go back to America, became a trapper for a while, um, had a bunch of different interesting jobs. I believe it was a hotel clerk in Auburn, California for a little while. Um so, yeah, he did a bunch of different stuff and had a pretty pretty amazing life, uh, as, in addition to basically being this the official mascot of the the Corps of Discovery's expedition. <laughs> yeah, and he, he ended up taking guardianship because Charbonneau and Sacagaway left mm-hmm. in April 1811 to go on another fur trading expedition, and they left Baptiste with him. Right. Uh, so it kinda, I think it kind of worked out for everyone. Yeah, I get the impression it wasn't like we don't want our kid and Lewis yeah. like give me your kid. I think like it right. was for the best interest of the kid and they all loved him very much. That's the impression I have. Uh she also had a daughter about a year after that in eighteen twelve, uh Lisette or Lisette. I don't know if it's an S or a Z. And uh sh- this is where we get to the sort of fork in the road as to what actually happened to Chicago way. Uh, there are a couple of stories. One is that she died uh, not long after of what was called putrid fever, or uh, which is probably typhoid fever. That's terrible. There's another story, and which she would have been about 25 years old in December of 1812. Uh, there's another story that she went on to live a very long life uh, in another part of the country but I think that one has kind of been shot down, right? Yeah. So at the at the turn of the last century, um, Sacagawea was kind of dug out of obscurity. Um, well, actually, there was a guy who was the the official, I don't know, biographer or chronicler of the Corps of Discovery's expedition, where he mm-hmm. he was in charge. His name was uh, Biddle, I believe. Uh, yeah. He was in charge of basically taking the. Um, notes of the core discovery and getting them ready for publication. You just couldn't publish the whole thing like that. He he edited them basically. But he also interviewed Clark and out of his interviews with Clark we we found a lot more um out about Sacagawea than we knew before and Biddle was like this is a very interesting story right here. I'm going to put Sacagawea front and center. So he kind of brought Sacagawea into the foreground for the first time. But then almost a century later as the um, the women's suffrage movement was starting to gain momentum, uh, there was a uh, woman named um, Emily, no, Eva Emery Dye, who wrote a book about the Lewis and Clark expedition and said, here's my heroine. Sacagawea is a heroine. I'm going to basically yeah. use her as an icon for the suffragette movement. Um, and that's how she kind of became this this symbol from that point on. I don't remember what kicked off the spiel, though. You asked a question or you said something. What was it? Do you remember? What spiel? My spiel about how um, Sacagawea was kind of brought out of obscurity by these writers. Oh, oh, oh! Um, where where it came? This idea came from that um, she had she had gone on to live a long life. Um, oh, right, right. That that first uh, book that was written by Eva Emery Dye was picked up by another historian who said, "You know what? Um, I've heard these stories about this woman who went on to live at the Wind River Plant, um, Reservation, and I think she's actually Sacagawea." And that kind of kicked off this whole hunt. Yeah, because like you said, there was, uh, I mean, there are numerous um, 
numerous people who wrote down sort of officially that she did die mm-hmm. very young at 25 years old, mm-hmm. including, I think, Clark uh, in one of his, um, I think, like maybe a financial ledger. Yeah. Ledger? Ledger. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it was a cash book about like where people like where are they where are they now basically and have they been paid, <laughs> right. and uh, so it, next to her name, he just wrote dead, which <laughs> not even a frowny I, face next. to I it. guess if it's a ledger, you're just trying to sort of you know be cold about it, but it that for someone who really cared a lot about her, it seemed it, it probably wasn't the right place to. Wax philosophical. Right, but also some people have said, um, well, no, he was covering for her because she, the the legend goes that she left Charbonneau, ran off to Mm. live a life away from her. As an independent woman. Right, exactly, which really kind of dovetailed with the suffragette movement's um, uh, push for women's rights. Um, So that was a great idea that that, that that's what she did. And the idea was that Clark was covering for her in his little cash ledger by saying she was dead, knowing full well she was alive. Other people are like, who's going to ever look in Clark's cash ledger? Like, Charbonneau's ever going to get his hands on it. That's Mm -hmm. probably not correct. And there... The whole idea that she went on to live on the Wind River Reservation until age 100 when she died in, like, the 1880s. Makes for a good story. It makes for a great story. And there was a woman who did live like that. Her name was uh, Para Evo, um, also known as Basil's mother, who lived to be 100. And a lot of people said, no, that's Sacagawea. But that was before more historical record came out, um, including an account from a guy who worked for the same fur trading company that Charbonneau did, knew Charbonneau personally, and wrote in his journal, had no reason to make anything up. But in December, I think on December 20th of uh, 1812, was it? Yeah. Wrote that Charbonneau's wife— uh, he's the one who said that she had a putrid fever and died and that she was the best woman in the fort. Uh, she was a good woman and the best woman in the fort. She was aged about 25 years, which totally fits the bill for Sacagawea. Uh, and she left a fine infant girl. Yes. So once that once that guy's journal was found, that was basically the, the nail in the coffin of the idea that Sacagawea had, had lived to age 100 after escaping her captor husband. Yeah, I think what's kind of cool is, you know, even though there's very little officially recorded about her life, everywhere she is recorded, it's all glowing praise. Yeah. Um, there's not like one entry where anyone was ever like, oh boy, Sakago and that baby are really <laughs> like, what a mistake that was. Right. Like, by all accounts, she was a boon to the Corb Discovery and a big, big part of its success. Yeah, and so as a result, Chuck, um, Lifetime, as in Lifetime Movie Network Lifetime, I couldn't find the year, but they recently conducted a survey of memorials to create the Lifetime Herstory map. Uh And of, I think, uh, 5,500-plus statues, monuments, and memorials that exist in the United States, only about 200, which is around 4%, honor women. But of those 200, 16 honor Sakagawea, which means that she is the most honored woman via monuments and statues in the entire United States. Amazing. The first one from what I read was by a group of suffragettes in Portland, Oregon in 1905. And that statue is obviously still there today. And it is beautiful. And guess who's strapped to her back in the statue? Um... Lissette? (laughs) 
Close enough. Little Baptiste. Little Baptiste, that's right. You got anything else? No, other than, and we should mention, I don't think we know a lot about what happened to Lisette. Uh, unfortunately, she was sort of lost to history. Yeah, for sure. Um, I guess that's it. That's it. All right. So since we said that's it, that means it's time, everybody, for Listener Mail. Yeah, we're going to do a couple of uh, corrections, a bit of a mea culpa for me and a correction. Oh, I like those. Um, I said the word redneck a lot, entitled the episode about the Klan, uh, used the word redneck. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, I probably shouldn't have. That's a derogatory term. Uh, the, the name actually has a different history. Uh, I think West Virginia coal miners uh, has something to do with that. And I just wasn't really being as sensitive enough. I, I'm not apologizing for for degrading the Klan. Right. Uh, but I, I probably shouldn't have used the word redneck with such a broad brush. But think about it, though, Chuck. That means the Klan is so rotten, they give rednecks a bad name. <laughs> That's essentially what we're saying here. I love it. Uh, and then, as from that same episode, uh, we need to address the Robert Bird incident. Because oh, yeah. Heard from a lot of people. That was all this. me. Yeah, so I think we were talking about Senator Robert Bird sort of being unapologetic about being in the Klan. That was very much not the case. This is one of the many emails, and this is from Aaron Patrick Lyons. Mm-hmm. He, him, his. Hey, listen to the great episode in the KKK, and uh, as usual, did a bang-up job. However, I have to take issue with uh, Josh's statement indicating that Senator Robert Byrd was an unrepentant Klansman. He was indeed an exalted Cyclops or local leader of the Klan in the 50s, uh, into the 50s. But through the 70s and 80s, he had a sincere change of heart regarding race relations and voted for the Martin Luther King Jr. national holiday, among other legislation, in his very long career. Uh, he was deeply embarrassed, uh, embarrassed and apologetic about his time in the Klan. Uh, and that is, like I said, from Eric Patrick, Aaron Patrick Lyons in Cedar Falls, Iowa. Mm-hmm. We heard from a lot of people that um, not only did he vote for the MLK holiday, but apparently did a lot of work for legislation to uh, for equal rights yeah. for African-Americans. I totally flubbed that one. So my apologies to Robert Byrd's family for tarnishing for sure. his legacy in that small way and I'm glad we got corrected almost immediately right after the episode came out it was can't believe you guys used redneck so much you were totally wrong about Robert Bird so this this listener mail is perfect and then there's one other thing I want to say too about the redneck thing Chuck um, yeah somebody pointed out I think it was on Twitter that using the word redneck was not only derogatory towards rednecks it obfuscated it covered up all of the people who aren't rednecks who see who are just kind of everyday normal people who are either right. in the clan or subscribe to the clan's ideologies that it makes sure. it seem like just this marginal group um or a marginal thought or fringe thought when it's really kind of subscribed to by a, an alarming number of people that you know you live and work beside and might never really guess at just how deep their racism goes so i think that's another reason to to have shoot it as well yeah, and you know, I'm, I'm not going to stick up for myself, but I think when you grow up in the South, you might feel like you have a little bit of ownership for on using sure. a word like that. For sure. So, uh, yeah, my apologies hey, to man. all the great rednecks of the world. <laughs> That's right. Sorry, Jeff Foxworthy. That's right. Sorry, Larry the Cable Guy, who's actually not really a redneck if you listen to David Cross's beef with him. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a that's fully an act, right? Yeah, from what I understand. He, he created that persona to get more uh, fans and comedy. That's right. Uh, and Smart man. That's right. And, uh, well, I guess since we started talking about Larry the Cable Guy, that's the end of this episode, and listener mail is petered out. 
Uh, and if you want to get in touch with us to correct us or call us out for something or whatever, um, lay it on us. Send us an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.